Stravinsky's Pulcinella is sometimes described as being in the neoclassical style. But what does that mean? To begin thinking about this, let's listen to something. If you know what's coming after the interval, that snippet from a trio sonata by Domenico Gallo might have sounded strangely familiar. Try and remember what you just listened to for when you hear it again. But isn't that a difficult question? Because, well, part of the problem with music, isn't it, is when it's happening, it takes up time, and then it's gone. What's to hold on to? And now you have to listen to me talking instead. Other art forms are far more forgiving with time. If you like a painting, you can sit in front of it as long as you like, respecting gallery opening hours, of course, and if you go back to look again, it will be just the same as it was, unless something drastic happened. The same mostly goes for stories or poems published in books, and in all those cases, it really doesn't matter whether or not the person responsible is available or even alive. Their works can pass to us across time. That is part of their power. Before sound recording came along, and what a difference that made, if you wanted to experience a specific piece of music, you had to either play it yourself or wait for someone or a group of people to play it for you. A wealthy music fan in 1780s Vienna wanted to hear what a fugue by Johann Sebastian Bach would sound like, played by his string quartet. Luckily for us, the person he got, and even better, paid to do this, was none other than Wolfgang Mozart. And this is a sample of what he came up with. It's always good to remember J.S. Bach's well-tempered clavier as it enters its fourth century now. And that was the fugue in E-flat from Book Two, as rearranged by Mozart for String Quartet. How intriguing. One of the things that really interests me is how and when it came to be that people growing up in the European musical tradition became conscious that music itself has a history, and that we can engage with it. Old music is inevitably out of fashion, and playing or listening to it, especially if it's not been heard for a century or more, can be challenging, surprising, even enlightening. 
Mozart's arrangements of Bach and Handel, along with those done by others who came after, offered a way of listening again, but with current instruments, as part of the ongoing revival of early music generally. As things developed, this became something expressive in itself and offered composers a couple of possibilities. Either take an old structural form and reuse it, or imaginatively recreate the sound world of the past. Deep down, the extraordinary finale of Brahms's Fourth Symphony is, for example, that most Baroque thing, a ground-based dance, using an ever-so-slightly modified rising theme from a Bach cantata. But you'd be forgiven for not spotting it. Here's the original... And here's what he turned it into. At the other end of the spectrum, there was Tchaikovsky, whose love of all things Mozartian showed itself in surprising ways. His opera, The Queen of Spades first staged in 1890, is set in St. Petersburg, late in the reign of Catherine the Great. And so when the libretto calls for a pastoral tableau, the composer takes the hint and we are musically transported to the courtly world of over a century earlier. It's so well integrated into the work as a whole that we can't tell if this is a pastiche or an arrangement or a mixture of both. So recreating the past in music was already well in hand by the time we get to the 20th century and the world of Igor Stravinsky. It gave composers interesting ideas and perhaps offered a calmly objective counterbalance to the lavish excesses of late Romanticism. But was that all? Was this approach a nostalgic love letter to the past? Or instead a response to what was happening right there and then. These new recreations of music in old styles seemed at times prompted by moments of crisis. The year 1917 in particular saw many new works we now consider to be either important early examples of neoclassicism or precursors of it, depending on where you draw the line. There was the first suite of Ottorino Respighi's Ancient Airs and Dances, four pieces for full orchestra based on simple Renaissance dances for solo lute. And then the so-called Classical Symphony of Sergei Prokofiev, his Symphony No. 1 in D major.
consciously composed in the style of Haydn and Mozart. Prokofiev was spending time away from the piano and began working on this symphony as a technical exercise. But why was he away from the piano? Because he was away from St. Petersburg, at that time convulsed in the upheaval that shortly became the 1917 revolution. It's amazing to think of him writing such breezy, sunny music at a time like that. But the most concise exercise in this historic mode to appear in that dark year of 1917 would have to be the Sonatine Bureaucratique, or Bureaucratic Sonatina, by the one and only Eric Satie. He took a sonatina by Muzio Clementi, sped it up and mixed it around, and also put a commentary in the score for the pianist to read, I guess, showing how the music tells the day in the life of an unremarkable office worker. Here, in the slow middle movement, we must imagine this man at his desk daydreaming about his chances of promotion. Maybe he'll be able to afford something nice for himself. The deep sense of irony underpinning that piece, Sati's bureaucratic sonatina, adds another element vital to the neoclassical style. After all, looking to the past is never without its problems. Things can become slightly misaligned. Far from re-inhabiting and regaining the past, the real modernity of neoclassicism is as much an acknowledgement that the past really is gone and any going back is an illusion. Perhaps the best way of hearing this at work is in a set of short piano pieces Stravinsky composed in 1921, shortly after Pulcinella, called Les Cinq Doigts, or The Five Fingers. Based broadly on Russian traditional folk material, each of the eight short movements of Les Cinq Doigts takes a simple motif and presents it with absolute clarity, so much so that nothing 
disrupts the regular beat of the harmonic pulse, even though it creates jangly little dissonances along the way. Past and present meet and clash, and it doesn't matter, because the overall effect is crisp, modern, it works, and in its way, is quite charming. So does this music represent a found object, or an actual reference, or is it something entirely new? The confusion comes from a collision of coincidental impulses, both a renewed interest in music's history, both traditional and art music, alongside a need to create a dialogue about style in modern music, and it all came together in different ways. It's a conversation without an ending. What do we listen to? And what do we listen for? To be reassured by familiar patterns? Or to find ourselves lost in uncharted territory? And what's wonderful about music is that either experience is possible from any time and place. So let's return to the early 18th century and a little harpsichord piece, a gavotte, not by Pergolesi, as Stravinsky might have thought, but actually by a North Italian composer called Carlo Ignazio Monza. (laughs) 